Hey guys, my name is Matt, one of the assistants here. We're going to be reading the Bible together. If you need uh, a Bible, we have some for you. So stick your hands up uh, and Peter will bring one around. Uh, if, not, if you already have yours or uh, you've been given it, open up to Ruth chapter 1. It's, I don't have a pew Bible, so I can't tell you what page, but I can tell you it's near the front. Uh, we're going to be reading through one, uh, Ruth chapter 1. Um, and so, Becky, as we read, take notice, and you can tell your dad, be more Ruth. All right, Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The sons of uh, the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Erathlites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's ha- husband Elimelech died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One named Orpah, and the, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kilion had also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughter-in-laws set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and travelled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's house. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you, or to return home and not follow you. For whoever, wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them travelled until they came to Bethlehem. Then, uh, when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about the arrival of the local woman, uh, exclaimed, uh, and the yeah, exclaimed, "Can this be Naomi?" "Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara," she answered, "for the Almighty has made me very bitter." 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me my Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess, and arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The Anglican system is uh, <laughs> basically what that's like. Uh, now, you can see there are our plans for our new property at 9 Lombard Street. We're thinking of... That guy's got the biggest yard in the whole world, hasn't he? Um, I was thinking I would love to set up something like that. It's called a Rube Goldberg machine, uh, all these kind of different bits. And I thought I could set it up across the stage and it'd look really good. Then I realised I'd have to then reset it up for 11 and I thought, let's watch a video. Uh, but how good are those kinds of things? Where They've spent ages setting that up and planning where all the things need to be to knock the next thing into the other thing and it all just kind of works. The angles are right, the timing is right, this hits that in just the right spot so it causes that to happen which pushes that over there and it all plays out. It's, it's awesome. And I want to say that is a bit like what God does in our lives and in the world and in history. Every detail, every moment, every angle, the timing and the placement And the direction of everything is part of his plan from beginning to end. Nothing is an accident, nothing is left to chance. But it's not quite exactly the same, is it? Because God doesn't just kind of set things up, push something and then sit back and watch. No, everything happens the way God wants it to, not just because he's planned it all out, but because he is always personally and actively involved in making every step happen. And the other thing is, how many times did they have to film that? Try that, get it wrong, have to practice, have to go back to the beginning, have to change things, move things. The guy who made that said it took him a month to set it up and then another month to get it to successfully work, trying over and over and over again. But you know what? God gets it right first time, every time. And God isn't just doing one thing at a time, concentrating on this ball to hit that, and now I'm concentrating on this. He's running the whole universe. How good is God? But you know what all this means? Is that seemingly insignificant things, unimportant moments, ordinary events, are actually vital in God's grand plan. One little domino falling, one little cup tipping over, one little ping pong ball bouncing in just the right direction, that kind of thing. Just like in life, tiny little things feel like nothing, actually trigger bigger things and result in God's purposes throughout history. This is what the Bible teaches us. God is in control and he uses ordinary people like us with ordinary lives doing ordinary things woven into his extraordinary plan in Jesus Christ where everything works to achieve his great purpose which is to see more and more people saved to the glory of Jesus Christ. We see a great example of this in the book of Ruth. God is in control. God has a plan. And from seemingly small events we can actually see how it fits into his eternal purpose. The story of Ruth is a story that goes somewhere. Just like that video, all the details lead up to achieve something. The book of Ruth really starts with with death, but it moves to life. 
It starts with emptiness, but it moves to fullness. It starts with cursed, but comes to blessing, separated to being united and belonging. It goes somewhere because it's part of God's plan. And as Ben mentioned, I've chopped this talk up into three sections and we'll sing a song in between each section. And the first bit we're looking at from Ruth chapter 1, Ruth commits to God and to God's people. Now chapter 1 is a really sad beginning, but it has a silver lining. We see that there is a famine in the land. There just isn't enough food. And remember, this is the land that's meant to be flowing with milk and honey. This is the promised land of peace and prosperity and so much food you didn't even have to work for it. That's what it was like when Israel first got there. But now look at it. We know something's wrong. Things aren't as they should be. There is an ongoing problem between God and his people that needs to be fixed. It's the land that was good until Israel got there and now they've corrupted it with their sin, with their rejection. Just like all of humanity has corrupted the world with our sin and rejection, starting with Adam and Eve. And so we meet the family of Elimelech and Naomi, their two sons, Marlon and Kilion. They decide to move to a foreign country where there's food over there. But they've gone to all this effort to find something better. They've left their home to improve their lives, to be fruitful, to be productive. They've tried to solve a problem, but when they get there, it gets worse. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And it says she was left with her two sons. And verse 4 tells us that while they were there, her sons get married, which is a problem. Because God had told his people they were never to marry foreign women. And not because of racism, but because of the gods they worship. Don't be joined to them in their lifestyle. Don't be joined to them in their worship. Don't think you can have partnership with them, God says. And yet these sons marry two Moabite women, Orpah, who had a very popular TV show back then, and Ruth. (laughs) But the tragedy continues. Verse 5, both Marlon and Kilion die. And Naomi is left without a husband, without her two sons, in a foreign land, trying to get away from a land with no food, Naomi now has no husband, no sons. She's reached a really low point. But in verse 6, she hears that Yahweh the Lord has brought food to the land of Israel. And so she and her daughters-in-law return home after this kind of miserable failure. But along the way, she actually says to Ruth and to Orpah, you should go back to your homes. You've been really kind to me and to my family but you should go home. Now, I'm not sure why she says that. Uh, I'm not sure why she says it halfway back to Bethlehem. Why not at the start of the journey? Why not before they left? But halfway back, she says, you should go home. I think she's ashamed. I think she's embarrassed. She left with a husband and sons and is now returning home without them, but what she's got is some Gentiles. And she feels like She has nothing to offer her daughters-in-law. She can't give them more sons to marry. She can't provide what they need. She can't give them a hope and a future. She tries to send them away. Now, they refuse because they want to go with her. She insists and eventually Orpah turns back home. But Ruth refuses, clings to Naomi. And listen to what she says in verse 16. Listen to this awesome loyalty and love and commitment 
in verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing to say. And in part, the reason Ruth is a heroine for us all to look up to is because of the way she shows deep loyalty to Naomi. Ruth's name means friend. And this is deep friendship, isn't it? This is as deep as you can get. I am with you no matter what. I've never been to your land. I don't know your people, but I'm going there. I'm going with you. But it's more than friendship even, isn't it? Because Orpah loves Naomi a lot, but she heads back home. Ruth has actually changed sides. She comes from a different nation, worships different false gods, lived very different ways, and she's saying, your God will be my God. Your people, my people, I am all in. She says no to her past life, her previous connections. She decides she wants to belong to God and to God's people. This is a vow and a commitment she makes before Yahweh the Lord. And she shows us that belonging to God and being one of God's people, committing to God, means being all in. You can't be half-baked. You can't be lukewarm. You can't have a bit of both ways. She is all in and committed. But the chapter ends on a sour note because when they actually arrive at Bethlehem and people recognise Naomi and, oh, she looks, she's returned... Have a listen to what Naomi says in verse 20. They say, can this be Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. See, even after Ruth's love, commitment, loyalty, friendship, her conversion, Naomi says, I have nothing. And that's the problem sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we're so focused on our pain, we refuse to let it go. Sometimes we're just so defined by our suffering, we think that is our identity and our value. Sometimes we're so fixated on what we don't have that we miss the beautiful things that we do have given to us by God. Ruth is an amazing blessing in Naomi's life, but she says, I am empty and have absolutely nothing. Well, this is our story set up now for us. We're going to see what happens next after we sing. So let's stand and sing our next song. Okay, so next section I've called uh, You Reap What You Sow. Uh, It's because we're now looking at chapters 2 and 3 where there's this scene that that revolves around the idea of seeking and finding that all takes place around the harvest. Um, So uh, seeking and finding, it's all harvest time, but there's this idea of you reap what you sow. Uh, what, what happens is it starts with Ruth going out to glean. Uh, what that means is you go to pick up any leftovers left out in the field. Uh, as the harvesters go through, uh, if they've left anything behind, dropped anything on the ground, gleaning is picking up those just little bits left behind. She's gone for the leftovers, basically. 
Uh, But verse 3 in chapter 2, I love it. It says, she happened to be in the field that belonged to Boaz. She happened to be. This is one of those little details. It looks like it's random, but God's in control. Happened to be in the field that belonged to Boaz, who happened to be connected to Elimelech's family. This is God's plan. Now, as she's gleaning, Boaz actually notices Ruth in the field. And he actually asks, who is she? Haven't seen her before. And when he finds out, look at what he says in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field. Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favour with you so that you notice me although I am a foreigner? See that Boaz is kind to her. Boaz is generous to her. He offers her help. He offers her protection. And when she asks why I'm a foreigner, why are you being so kind? If this was a romantic comedy, it would be because sparks had flown between them. And she was super pretty. Or actually what had happened is she'd just taken off her glasses and it became obvious, wow, she's actually beautiful. But this is deeper. Listen to Boaz's response. Verse 11, Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. May you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. See, what impresses Boaz is not she's really good looking, it's her commitment and her generosity and her care and her love for Naomi and the fact that she's decided to actually join God's team and God's people and come under God's protection. He respects and admires her for that. See, she had shown generosity and loyalty and selflessness and what she reaps here is the same. Boaz is generous to her. He asks her to join in the meal. He tells the harvesters to leave extra grain for her. He's committed to looking after her. Ruth, who is an awesome friend, has found a friend. And then in chapter 3, again, Naomi and Ruth talk, make a plan together. And this time, after the day day of harvest, while Boaz is asleep, Ruth goes in and lies at his feet to cover them and keep them warm. Now, in one sense, that's a very strange thing to do and probably a little scandalous, inappropriate in one sense in terms of what does it look like, but the passage makes it clear nothing improper happens. And look at how Boaz takes it. So now I'm in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10. He's like, who is this? Like he asked the question in chapter 2, who is this? Oh, that's Ruth. He asked it again in chapter 3, who is this? Oh, this is Ruth. I'm Ruth, your servant. But have a look at verse 10. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. See, Boaz, again, is impressed by her kindness. That's what makes Ruth such a heroine. She doesn't fight a mighty battle. She doesn't defeat armies or conquer nations, but she has real courage and she is kind. And what she is beginning to experience more and more is God's kindness. 
God's faithfulness. Do you know, he had promised centuries before this. He says to Abraham, I'm going to give you so many people, you're not going to be able to count them. And anyone who blesses your people will be blessed. And anyone who curses them will be cursed. The promised faithful love and kindness that God has shown to Israel all along is now overflowing and is now including this Gentile woman, Ruth. And that's great news for the whole world that God's love overflows. And so Boaz again takes care of her, gives her what she needs in abundance in terms of food to go back to her mother-in-law as God continues to show kindness. Now we're going to sing one one more time uh, and then we'll come back together to finish off our study in Ruth. So let's stand together and sing again. Well, one of the uh, joys of watching movies with our kids as they grew up was the 4,872 questions that they would ask all the way through the movie. In fact, opening scene has just started. Who's that? What are they doing? Why are they mowing the lawn? Where are they going? Why are they having breakfast? Are they the good guy? Are they the bad guy? Why did they do that? And the answer was usually, wait and see. You need to keep watching. You need to see how the story plays out to understand why that mattered and what that character was doing. Just wait and it will become clear at the end. Maybe if you were reading your way through the Bible, you might get to Ruth and you'd wonder, why did I hear this story? What's this got to do with the, the judges who were kind of weird but fighting epic battles? Then we get to Samuel's amazing you know, rule and reign and then we get kings. Why is this Ruth here? Well, chapter 4 very nicely pulls all the threads, all the loose ends of Ruth together, including some threads we may not have even noticed initially coming through. And chapter 4 starts with Boaz calling the town elders together because he would like to marry Ruth. But as it turns out, there is someone whose family responsibility it is ahead of him in the line of commitment. See, in Israel... If a married man died without having children, then his brother was to marry the widow, give her children who would actually continue the line and the inheritance of the dead brother. The whole point of the family line thing not being erased from Israel. It's about continuity and passing on through time. This family of God's people would last and remain and be blessed. But there are no brothers. But the closest relative is this man, And there's one closer than Boaz. Now, Boaz is very clever. He's very wise and he handles it amazingly. Look at what he says to the guy when everyone's gathered. They're in chapter 4, verse 3. He said to the redeemer, this is the title, the kinsman redeemer, this is his role, to be there to kind of step in and rescue the situation. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, the guy answered. So there's the thing. Naomi has land and she will sell it. Guy, you have first option. But if you don't want to take it, I'll take it. And the guy, of course, is like, I'll buy it. He gets to increase his land. He gets to increase his inheritance that his family will have. And then having set it up like that, Boaz adds in the extra detail. Along with adding to, with the opportunity to buy the land, 
comes the duty and responsibility to marry Ruth. And at that point, the guy changes his mind. Now, Boaz has very wisely and astutely arranged it so that it isn't actually about Ruth. He starts uh, with the idea of the land because um, if he'd started with the idea about marrying Ruth, the guy would have looked like a lawbreaker. He would have looked like he couldn't care less. He would have looked like he doesn't matter about his family commitment. But he basically gives the guy a way out by putting it in terms of the land and inheritance. Because if that man had married Ruth, then their children would have inherited Elimelech's land and his land. Elimelech, Kilion's line would have continued with all of that land. His land would have gone into that family system. Because it goes through the firstborns. And that's why brothers were often very reluctant to do this. It was an act of generous selflessness and sacrifice to do this. So the man politely declines, verse 6, says, actually, for the sake of my inheritance, maybe I won't do that. Which means everybody wins. And then we get to this random detail that I'm going to read out because it's weird and funny. Verse 6 of chapter 4. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was a method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Now, just to let you know, we actually tried that with Morris when we put down the deposit for Nine Lombard just before Christmas. But apparently the warden's sandals weren't good enough. Uh, But just here's my shoe. It's sorted out, isn't it? I don't know what's got to do with anything, but it's all about the sandal. But now we get to the point where, look how everything has come together under God. Naomi has actually been paid for the field, so she has means to provide for herself now. Ruth is now a fully-fledged member of Israel and of the community. She's been redeemed and accepted and married into the line. Boaz has got to fulfil his family responsibilities. And Boaz and Ruth marry and God gives them a son. And there is this beautiful moment where Naomi realises just how much she had all along in Ruth. Remember she said in chapter 1, call me Mara, call me bitter. I am bitter, I used to be sweet now, I've got nothing, I am empty. God has cursed me, God has taken away everything good. Have a look at chapter 4 verse 14. Look at what the women say about her now. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to this boy. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. Blessed be God. Blessed be the Lord. May his name be known. They realise God is the one behind all this. And hear what they say. Naomi, Ruth loves you. And Ruth is better than seven sons. Her friendship, her loyalty, her commitment. She's amazing. You thought you were empty, but you had Ruth. Her love, her generosity, her kindness... Her never going away friendship. It's such a blessing from God to have a friend like that in your life. And so Naomi has 
Obed, her grandson, sits him on her lap and listen to what the women say. At that, verse 17, the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed, which means servant. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the women are like, it's, it's like Naomi has got a son to love and raise and look after, even after she said it could never happen. So it's all come together beautifully. It's like the machine and all the bits have knocked over all the bits to swish. But the story finishes actually on a much grander note than Ruth's faithfulness and loyalty being blessed by God. It's much bigger. The ending is even bigger than the love and the giving of themselves that Ruth and Boaz share. It's bigger even than a family being restored after hardship. It turns out this was more than just Ruth and Naomi moving from empty to full, from hopeless to blessed. This is the story. This is a key chapter, a moment in how God gets from Adam and Eve messing everything up to Jesus fixing everything up. Because chapter 4 finishes by telling us that Ruth and Boaz have a son called Obed. Obed grows up, becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of David. King David. Ruth is actually David's great-grandmother. David, who will be promised personally by God, I will give you a son who will be born in your hometown of Bethlehem and he will reign over my kingdom forever and he will make everything right and his glory will be spectacular and will fill the earth. How does God go from a world that is messed up and broken full of rebels to sending his saviour born as a man Well, a very key part of his plan is that Ruth would be a friend to Naomi. God is in control. And seemingly ordinary things from ordinary people, kind of in the middle of nowhere, all part of his plan to achieve extraordinary, glorious things. That should fill us with massive confidence as a church that we think, man, we feel ordinary. And as Christians, we think, I'm not sure I've got anything to offer. God thinks, well, that makes you amazing in my kingdom. Because watch what I will do with you through Jesus Christ, who gives us strength to do all things through him. It's a beautiful story. It's a, it's a worthwhile story just in and of itself. But when you see it plugged in to God's grand story, it's amazing. Our God is truly amazing, truly in control, worth trusting and loving at all times. We're going to spend some time in prayer now, and uh, I believe that's Molly. So let me hand over to Molly.